Yes, please be seated. My name is Heather Pittman. Today's first reading is from Paul's letter to the... Today's reading is, to, is from the Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Listen for the word of God. I therefore, the prisoner in the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in all. Hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. Today I have the pleasure of introducing our guest preacher, Micah Smith. Micah is the pastor of Living Hope Christian Fellowship. It's a congregation of the Christian and Missionary Alliance of Canada. They meet Sunday afternoons at Bay Community Church in Comox. Reverend uh, Ryan had the opportunity to preach there several weeks ago, and so Micah is back here to do, return the favor for us. He's a graduate of Regent College and served in churches in Richmond, Regina, and Portage La Prairie before coming to Living Hope in 2019. Micah and his wife, Sarah Cool live in Courtney with their three kids. And I had to check, make sure I was going to say the names right. I can't even say my own kids' names right all the time. Karis, Kea, and Kaylin. So they are going to get those mixed up a lot. Please welcome Micah. Thank you, Robbie. It is a deep pleasure to be with you this Sunday, to worship with you, and in particular on this Trinity Sunday, to pay attention to how the being of God and how God is forms and shapes who we are and how we are meant to be as Christians in this world. I want to talk this Sunday about two things, really. What it means to live a life worthy of our calling, and then secondly, how does the unity that Paul addresses in this text fit into this life worthy of our calling? When Paul says to us, live a life worthy of your calling, my sense is that what he's doing here is really challenging us to pay attention. Is something that we're doing in our life fitting in with this idea of a worthy life? And I think each one of us has perhaps thought, is my life worthy? Am I doing well with my life? If you pay attention to movies or books, they often will have the main character experience some sort of a struggle with, is my life worthy of what I'm supposed to be doing? And maybe I'm not living up to that. And sometimes a mentor will come along and help that person to see, you know, you could be doing a little bit better living a life that's worthy of the gifts that you've been given. Similarly, I think Paul is doing that here. When he makes this plea to us, chapter 4 opens with a powerful plea. I, Paul, a prisoner in the Lord, I beg you. 
He begs us to lead a life worthy of the calling to which we've been called. Now, what he's doing in that first sentence is reminding us that he's a prisoner, and the people receiving this letter, they would have known, yeah, Paul's a prisoner. But he says here, I'm actually a prisoner in the Lord. My chains are not, not a block to my being in the Lord and doing what I should be doing. That my chains are not a block to my fulfillment of my calling. He's a prisoner in the Lord. This idea of being in prison would have been incredibly shameful then, and it is now too. If you were to tell somebody, actually my great hero, the person that I call as a mentor, they're actually in prison right now. That, oh, sorry to hear that, the person would say. So even now, it's still shameful if your mentor or hero is in prison. And that's what Paul is reminding them of. I'm in prison, but I'm actually in prison for the Lord. He's trying to say that the prison itself is not a brokenness of his calling, but it's part of the way and actually that he's able to fulfill his calling. He's able to live a life worthy of his calling, regardless of the context that he's in. And each one of us, in our different spaces that we find ourselves, we may wish our context was otherwise. I wish the current situation that I found myself in was not as it is, but was a different way. Paul wishes, probably, that he was not under house arrest in Rome when he wrote this letter. He probably wishes that he had the freedom to fulfill what he thought he needed to do, which was to go to Spain. But, in God's wisdom, Paul is under house arrest, and it becomes the ways and means in which Paul is able to fulfill and live a life worthy of his calling. Paul wants each one of us, regardless of our context, to be able to say the same thing, that we are living a life worthy of our calling. Now, thinking of our movies and books and the ways that they teach us, what is a life worthy of our calling? Often the life worthy of our calling is, what does society tell us? Well, make lots of money is one life worthy of calling. Were you successful in your life? Or perhaps, did you do lots of good things? Did you help lots of people? Were you a good person? These are ways and means of trying to understand what it means to be, live a life worthy of our calling. But for Christians, what we think of is we think of the whole gospel, what this is calling us to, which is the, the full Christian calling to be an ambassador of light, a testimony to truth, a beacon of love and a witness to the hope that one day all things will be well. The Christian calling is that broad and rich picture of the New Testament of someone who is the ambassador of light, testimony to truth, a beacon of love, and a witness to the hope that one day all things will be well. So Paul calls us to live a life worthy of the calling that the whole gospel, the whole New Testament, shows us what a Christian is supposed to be. And in this day and age, we live in a time in which there is a lot of divisiveness. We have felt that, even here in Canada, very strongly in the last year or so, that we live in a time and a place where things are quite divisive. So I think it's important to reflect on this Trinity Sunday when Paul gives us the secret to unity. He tells us that there's actually a secret recipe, and this is the way that in all contexts and spaces that you find yourself, that you can contribute and be a part of living towards the unity that we all so greatly desire. When Paul writes here that we need to live a life worthy of our calling, the next thing he says is that we're supposed to do this. He uses four things, humility, meekness, 
forbearance, and patience in love. And then he tells us to live those four things in the unity of the Spirit to keep the bond of peace. The way he phrases this, the idea of living a life worthy of your calling, it means that you cannot live a life as a Christian follower that does not participate in seeking the unity that, Christ, that Paul addresses here. So Paul describes a unity of the church, and he says that this is an essential part of what it means to live a life worthy of our calling. Live a life worthy of your calling, but to do so without contributing or seeking the unity of the church, you're missing the call. This is an essential part of the call. When Paul phrases it here, to draw our attention to unity, it makes me think, well, there's lots of good ways to get unity, isn't there? And if in our day and age you were to say, well, how do you get unity? If you think of people who work at Walmart, they start the day off with a wonderful song to kind of unify them together as a team. We want to focus on that idea of team. Similarly, we're also in our society and culture today, we'll unify around an ideal or a purpose. We're all going to do this mission, and it's going to be the thing that we unify around. Or perhaps we're all going to unify around uh, being good people, having good morals. We're good people, and this binds us together. Or perhaps we're of a same type of people, and we've come under attack, and so we're going to kind of circle the wagons. We're going to find that as our formation of unity. We're all persecuted together. These are ways and means of finding unity, but they are echoes, if you will, of what we really need to hear. The reason that these don't work ultimately is because they're all subject to sin and fallenness of humanity. Each of these other ways depend upon us being incredibly strong. We have to hold our arms and link them together and say, we're all on this mission together and we're going to hold arms together. And if I fall down, you're going to pick me up and we're going to keep doing it. It sounds good. It sounds strong. But it's limited by our fallenness, by our ability to actually hold our arms together. And it leads to a sense that, you know what? If sin does show up here, let's kind of hide it. Let's kind of push it out of the way because it's going to break our strength. So we're going to kind of pretend like there isn't the sin here because otherwise if it does show up, it's going to break things apart. The foundation of our Christian unity needs to rely on something more than just ideals or morals or a catchy song that we do in the morning. So to lead a life worthy of our calling, contributing to the unity that Paul draws our attention to here, we have to live in light of the life of the Trinity that he draws our attention to in, the, in verses 5 and 6. One Lord, one Spirit. The secret recipe that Paul draws our attention to is that life in the Trinity is the foundation for true and authentic unity. Because life in the Trinity doesn't depend on us being non-sinful, to being strong and linking our arms to making that unity happen. Life in the Trinity actually can heal us of our sinfulness, even as it binds us together. The secret recipe that Paul draws our attention to, life in the, in the Trinity, he gives us four ways to kind of keep that unity together. But we need to be careful here of bad theology. Bad theology at this point would say, great, those four things, those are in the Trinity, and so we see the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
and they have these four things in them, so then we should have them also, and we'll try to live up to what it means to be the Trinity. That would miss, I think, what Paul is trying to help us with here. Paul is not calling our attention to say, you need to be more like the Trinity. The Trinity isn't just our example that we have to live up to. Which one of us is going to ever be able to do that? Instead, what Paul is inviting us into is to live in the life of the Trinity so that these four recipes of unity in Christ become apparent in our life as we live our life leaning into the life of the Trinity. Let me try to explain that. Now, these four things, what Paul is doing here, I think, is he's writing in the way that a Hebrew person would write, somebody who's steeped in Hebrew prose and poetry. You often don't say something just once. You often say something twice. You'll notice this if you read the Psalms. Things aren't said just once. They're said a second time, given a little bit of expansion so that the listeners or the audience really can feel it and get the full understanding of the nuance that you're trying to shape them here. And Paul's doing the same thing here. He lists off three nouns, and then the fourth one is a verb. And so what I think he's doing is he's saying the same thing twice to give us nuance to it. The fourth one that's the verb is patience in love. This idea of patiencing in love with one another, I think Paul is saying this is the secret to unity. Regardless of what divisiveness you find yourself in, whether it is between nation, between co-workers, between spouses, between siblings, I think Paul is saying that the secret to unity in life together that we need to find is patience and love that we find in the life of the Trinity. And that we find this patience and love through three three things, humility, meekness, often translated gentleness, and the fourth, third one, forbearance. The idea of humility, I think, is so incredibly important to the Christian life. We cannot stress this enough. The whole of your Christian spirituality depends on humility. I think of it as like oil in the engine of your car. It's Without it, the engine simply doesn't run any length of time. It will burn up and destroy itself. And if you don't maintain your oil over time, of course, it gets all gunked up, and then the engine starts to break down and things start to fall apart on the inside of the engine. I think humility is like that for us as well in our life. If we don't continually maintain a sense of humbleness and humility, our spiritual life gets kind of gunked up. Or if something happens that breaks a hole in the oil pan and the oil falls on the ground, the engine's going to burn up in a few seconds. Similarly, if humility leaks out of your life, your spirituality is going to burn up in an incredibly unhealthy way. Humility, without it, what happens to the quest for unity in the church? Well, without humility, arrogance will eat away at that unity. Competition will come in between the people of God. Mistrust. We will start to use one another instead of serve one another. Think of the story early in the Bible of Cain and Abel, where God tells Cain that sin is always crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. Humility is something that actually resists sin's ability for it to get its claws into us, because humility 
makes it so that our chance of being sinful against the neighbor is broken down because we are a humble person. And if we lean and live into and out of that humility, we tend to be resistant towards sin against our neighbor. So humility is incredibly important for unity in the Christian church. Living our life in the Trinity, how does that relate to humility? Well, if we are willing to live in relationship with the Holy Trinity, we end up knowing ourselves more fully. And the Christian witness over the last 2,000 years, those who write on spiritual matters have found that the closer they get to God, the more they know themselves fully as a sinful person. We find our humility in recognizing who we are before God. But it's not a bad or a negative thing because we also recognize the deep love that God has for us. So even as we recognize that we're more sinful the closer we get to Jesus, it's done so in a loving and formative way. And then learning to live in the Trinity, paying attention to what that means to live your life as part of the life of God, it leads us into this space where we live for the audience of one. The more closely I live my life attached to the life of God, the less I am beholden to what others think of me, and I need to do what they expect me to do. The more I live in the life of the Trinity, the more I care about one audience, and that's the audience of the Father. Is my Father pleased with what I'm doing? How am I living up to the life that He has called me to? This is true humility, where your opinion of me still matters because I care about you, but ultimately I have an audience of one. And this makes me humble in the sense of, well, I don't need the praise that comes with celebrityship. I just need the pleasure of my Father. This humility leads us to the second item that Paul draws our attention to that contributes to the unity of the Christian faith, and that is meekness. Meekness, when we hear it, we often think of, well, meek is weak. Somebody who has their shoulders hunched and their head down. They're like a doormat. There's only two people in the Bible who are called meek, Jesus and Moses. I don't think that meek means weak. It happens in Numbers 12 for Moses and Matthew 11 for Jesus. In Numbers 12, what happens is Aaron and Miriam are trying to say that, you know, Moses has a bunch of favor with God, but we'd like some favor too, and we'd like some favor with the people. We'd like to make our own decisions. Maybe Moses isn't all that. And they kind of get in trouble with God for calling into question Moses' authority over the people of God. And it says in that text, Numbers 12, that Moses was the most meek man. He was the most meek man in all the earth. And then it says, here's what God's going to do to Miriam and Aaron. And the way that I read this text is to see that Moses, being meek, means that Moses doesn't resent them. In the text, Moses doesn't take any action against them. A strong leader, right? When they hear of betrayal from their lieutenants, shouldn't a strong leader smack them down? But Moses is meek. He does not resent them for the way that they feel towards him or even the actions that they took. 
Instead, he lets God deal with it. And instead, Moses prays that God will go easy on them, if you will. Moses is unwilling to take revenge or to be consumed with resentment. I think this informs the way that we read it when Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary, for I am meek. Come to me, all you who are weary, for I am meek, and I am humble of heart. And then Jesus tells us that he will give us a burden and a yoke that is appropriate to us. And he's actually in that text inviting us into his calling, my yoke, he says, which he tells us just before is his relationship with his Father through the Spirit. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you a proper fitting yoke, which is to live in the life of the Trinity. And you can do this, and you can know that you can come to me safely because I am meek, meaning I don't resent you for your brokenness and your fallenness, and I'm not going to hold it against you. And instead, this is a true safe space for you to come if you are weary and heavy laden. So I think Jesus takes this idea of meekness when he draws it upon himself to invite us into the most of safe places that we can be in his care. It takes great strength to be meek, not great weakness. It takes incredible strength to say, I will not take my revenge. I will not take the score that I am owed against you. A lack of meekness is something that actually eats away at shalom or peace. A lack of meekness eats away at unity and at the peace because we start to resent others. Perhaps you've seen this happen in the church where people can keep scores against one another. You remember three years ago? I still remember. They hurt my feelings. We can hold that resentment in the church. Instead, we need to be strong in the meekness of God, living into the life of the Trinity so that our relationship with our Lord Jesus Christ is actually the place in which we receive our strength and we don't try to hold that score against others and force the points in our favor, if you will, when we have the opportunity to do so. Instead, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Our Lord Jesus Christ and the joy that we find in living life in Him, this is the strength that we rely on and depend upon, and our obedience to Him matters more than trying to even the score. And so we want to live as meek people. And the more we live in the life of the Trinity, Asking and praying for and seeking this meekness, the more we will live within the strength that God gives us. No resentment. It's all in His hands. This is an essential part of what it means to seek the unity of the people of God. And it brings us to the third item that Paul draws our attention to here, and that is forbearance. Forbearance used in the New Testament is always part of the reconciliation process. There's things in the reconciliation process that are confession, justice, and mercy, forgiveness, and forbearance is an important part of that. If there's no forbearance, as soon as somebody wrongs me, I get offended and insulted, and I can't work towards reconciliation with them because now I start to set a wall up between us. Forbearance is a way of saying, I understand that you've wronged me, but I'm still going to try to seek reconciliation with you and seek to live in life together with you. 
we need to be careful that forbearance is not the covering up of sins. It's not saying, well, those sins don't matter, we're going to put them over here and not think about them. Forbearance is part of the reconciliation process, which has the search for truth and justice. God reveals our sins by His Holy Spirit, but He doesn't crush us with that revelation. It's His forbearance that keeps us in the relationship even as He reveals our sins to us. So similarly, in our relationships with one another, as we try to work through wrongs, we do so with forbearance, not trying to crush one another. As we read in the call to worship, God is slow to anger. From those texts in the Old Testament, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. So therefore, as we try to live our life in the Trinity, we do so by the Holy Spirit, not taking offense with one another, not holding one another in contempt, but using forbearance to allow ourselves the space to seek reconciliation even though we've been wronged. Forbearance is the ability to pray for those to persecute you, to love your enemies. And forbearance is critical for maintaining the bond of unity because otherwise unity is only as strong as there are wrongs that haven't been told yet because as soon as a wrong gets told, then our unity becomes broken. So forbearance is an important part of this recipe for unity because otherwise unity will fall apart as soon as a wrong becomes apparent. We need forbearance. We need to learn this. And we do so as we live in the life of the Holy Trinity. The Spirit draws us and leads us in the way of forbearance, training us in the very same way that God is, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Together, these three things, humility, meekness, and forbearance, as we learn them through living in the life of the Trinity, we begin to be people who are patienting in love with one another, recognizing that, yes, we do sometimes fall short, but we have patience with one another in and the love of God for one another. And this is formed in us as we live our lives in the life of the Trinity more and more as we grow into maturity in that very life. My encouragement for you this week is to take some time in the morning and pray. Father God, how are you calling me to live a life worthy of your calling, which means I have to live for the unity of the church. It's not just me and thee. I'm part of the church. So God, how are you calling me to live into the unity of the life of the church? Are you asking me to be humble? Please show me how. Please give me the strength to be humble. Are you calling me to be meek? And where in my life do I need to be meek and not hold resentment? Or are you calling me to forbear somebody? To not hold their wrongs over top of their head and use it as a way of forcing them to behave the way I want to. But are you calling me to be a person of forbearance, patient in love, humble and meek? My hope for you is that you can live into the life that the Trinity is calling you into and that is worthy of your calling. Amen.
You're calling. 